taken from uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 10 to 16, but I shall read to you from uh, verse 5 to 16 to give the context to our lesson today. Okay. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband and wife and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcised party. There must be silence since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for sinful, for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of them, the Cretans, a prophet of their own, say, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May the Lord bless the reading of His word. Let us seek the Lord's help. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you Lord once again for giving us a time and a place whereby your people can come together as one or to even sing praises unto your name, to seek you in prayer, and now Lord even to hear from the preaching of your word. And Lord, we commend this hour of learning to your hands, that your Holy Spirit will be pleased to be our teacher, to open our ears, to open our hearts, and also to humble our hearts, that we may receive your word in all faith and also in tenderness of heart, that it may bring forth much fruit for your glory. We also pray for the preacher that you'll be pleased to unction him with your Holy Spirit, to grant him the clarity of mind and speech, that he may preach your word even boldly, and may glorify your name. So help us, O Lord, in our learning. May indeed, Lord, be our teacher and to guide us into your truths. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw that Paul had left Titus in Crete after they have evangelized the island to put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every town where they have planted a church. 
And Paul began the letter by, in the first place, he outlined the philosophy of service. That is, all servants of the Lord are indeed servants of the Lord, born slaves of Christ. They are to obey their master and to please their master in all they, which they do. And secondly, he also out, began the letter by outlining the qualification of the eldership. The eldership of the church are to be above reproach. Godly and spirit gifted to serve Christ and his church as a servant of God. We also noted that the Christian character, the Christian graces of the eldership is just as important as his spirit giftedness or even his intellectual abilities. It is not enough for a person to be well qualified to be able to preach and to teach the Bible. He must be bearing the fruit of the Spirit and live a godly life. And my own personal criteria is he, he must be a cut above the congregation in all aspects of his work with the Lord. And having considered their qualification, Paul outlined the first duties, in a sense, of the eldership in our text today. The first duty of the eldership, as outlined in our text today, is the eldership must guard the flock by refuting false teachers and by correcting any believers who have followed false teaching. In short, the eldership and also the church, by extension, is in the battle for the souls of men. We are not in an ordinary society. Not, right, not like the society which I serve part-time as a volunteer. And frankly, this is never a pleasant task. The battle for the souls of man is never a pleasant task. And the eldership, I think anyone would rather focus on the positive aspects of the ministry. Now, if the world is free of viruses, we wouldn't need doctors or vaccines, right? We would live happily ever after, after an epidemic. But we know that the world is not like that. It is infested with viruses. They refuse to go away. Likewise, if the church is free of false teachers and false believers, we will not need the eldership to confront and correct these deadly spiritual viruses. And our text today tells us a few ways how the eldership and the church, by extension, can guard the flock from enemies without and within, and to fight the better for the souls of men. To begin with, 
The other sheep must guard the flock by refuting false teachers. Now Paul tells us in uh, Titus verse 11, uh, chapter 1 verse 11, that this man must be silenced. While it may not be possible to stop anyone from talking, it is possible to stop them from spreading their errors within the church. This will include guarding the pulpit from false teachers and preachers. It will also include bring, being on guard against their infiltrating smaller groups in the church, like our fellowship groups or SEG or even our simple Bible study groups. Paul says that these men were upsetting whole families, not the whole church yet, but they're infiltrating into certain families and they're upsetting certain families. Whole families are infected by their teaching. Smaller groups or small groups context give false teachers a more convenient setting in which to spread their virus, their lies. The Christian cults or the cults today will try to get a believer or family to study the Bible with them. They prey on an individual or a family who are not well taught and draw them in. Now, note two things about such false teaching. First of all, false teaching always damages people. It harms and damages the spiritual well-being of the people of God. Task to confront error is an act of love. If you care about your fellow brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot let them go into destructive heresies without warning. And on the side, the word heresies also include the divisive or divisive teaching. Not necessarily error, but teaching that divide. Teaching that divide the church, divide the family, or even divide the individual. So we are not only watching, guarding against the flock, against false teaching, but against any teaching that divides the church, that divides the congregation of the Lord. As I mentioned before, by and large, the evangelical church are saying that doctrine is not very important. Love is most important. And of course, we must love one another as Christ loves us. And the world will know that we are Christian by our love. But if our love is based on false doctrine or based on nothing, it is not true love. It is just a fuzzy feeling, warm feeling. Second, the greatest danger for false teaching always comes from within the church. These false teachers profess to know God. No doubt they seem to be nice people. And Satan is smart enough not to use men who look like evil villains. Nice false teachers have you over for a meal. They invite you to their gatherings. Everyone makes you feel like you are part of a group. But their teaching is deadly. 
And there are three ways the eldership and by extension the church can refute false teachers. The first way is to we are to refute false teachers by teaching sound doctrines. Paul wrote in Titus 1.9, the eldership must be able to give instruction in sound doctrines and rebuke those who contradict it. Rather than always focusing on combating false doctrines, which is needful at times, the eldership must teach sound doctrine. It is a well-known fact that when a bank trains her staff to detect counterfeit notes, they do so by having him or her to study genuine notes. And if the staff knows what real notes look like, he will be, be able to quickly spot the counterfeit notes. The texture, the mark will be different from the real notes. And he can tell it straight away by even feeling the note. So by teaching sound doctrine conscientiously, continuously, the church will be able to test every doctrine to know if it is true, if it is from the Lord. The church will be able to test every spirit that comes. Sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. It leads to healthy spiritual growth and maturity. And take note, teaching that does not confront sin is not sound doctrine. Teaching. If teaching just feel, feeds your curiosity, if the teaching just inflates your minds and egos, it is not sound doctrine. It is not healthy doctrine. Properly taught, sound biblical doctrine should lead us to the fear of God and to godly living, not to mere speculations. Secondly, the eldership and the church by extension are to refute false teachers by exposing their false teaching. There is, there is a common belief that it does not matter what you believe, correct? So long you believe. So as long as you are sincere in your belief, that matters. But that can be fatal. Now you can believe with all your heart and all your mind, even with all your body, that you can jump off from the tallest HDB block in Singapore and fly. It happens a few times at my block. Of course, the person had taken some medicine and he had the illusion that he can fly. Well, he flew maybe for one second and then he dropped. This is fatal. This is not belief. And it is the same spiritually. Certain things are spiritually true because the God has revealed them to us in His Word. Other things are spiritually false because they come to us from the enemy of the soul, the father of lies. Paul says that these false teachers have turned away from the truth. In verse 14, this means that spiritual truth is knowable and absolute, not vague or relative, as the world tells us today. 
while we do not know the specific errors of these false teachers in Crete, we can glean from the letter and also the times of the early church and we can guesstimate that they are promoting three common errors in the church then. The first error is false teacher often acts works to salvation by faith in Christ alone. Paul refers to them in verse 10 as especially those of the circumcision party. This was a group of Jewish people who claimed to have believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they insist that those who profess faith in Jesus were obliged to keep the Jewish ceremonial laws and be circumcised to be saved. Not just the keeping of the ceremonial laws, you must be circumcised to enter the kingdom of God. They could not bring themselves to accept Gentiles into the church based on faith in Christ alone. Years ago, Paul and Barnabas have a great dissension or with such false teachers in Antioch, which led to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The conclusion reached at the Jerusalem Council was that all people, whether you are Jew or a Gentile, we are saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. But despite that decision made at the Jerusalem Council, this zealous or misguided Jewish believers keep promoting their errors. They follow and they haunt Paul wherever he goes in his missionary journey, going to the churches that he had planted, perverting the gospel of grace. And Paul have earlier denounced them that if anyone or even angel that preached to them the gospel which they have not heard from the beginning, then person is accursed. We read that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9. And we must take note of this. The enemy of the soul is always introducing false teaching on the way of salvation. On the one hand, he will add work, righteousness and merits to the way of salvation. This is embraced and taught by two huge segments of Christendom, namely the Catholic and the Orthodox churches. Salvation by grace and work. Works righteousness. But small segment, and sadly, small segment of the evangelical church are not spared too. They say you must add Good works like baptism, like witnessing, like keeping the Sabbath, like being in a discipleship group, etc., to merit salvation. And I come across many such evangelical churches teaching that. And on the other hand, the enemy of the soul also brings in easy believism. I've been saying that for ages and this is actually more subtle than work righteousness 
Now, in short, easy believism just requires people or anyone to give an intellectual assent to the content of the gospel to be safe. We will agree with four points of the gospel, you are on your way to heaven. If you, can, if you have prayed the sinner's prayer, yes, you are on the way to heaven. Now, large segments of the evangelical church, including reformed ones, are infected and plagued by easy believism in one way or another. But we know from Scripture that the way to salvation is repentance toward God and faith in Christ, which results in a life of good works for God's glory. So the eldership and the church must fight against this false doctrine. It is not a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Secondly, false teachers often focus on baseless speculation. Paul says that they pay attention to Jewish myths in verse 14. This was probably the same error that Paul refuted in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, where certain persons taught myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God, that is, by faith. This probably involves fanciful interpretation and stories built around some of the Old Testament characters and myths and legends. And if you go to Israel today, the rabbi will still tell you that they have many volumes of extra-biblical teaching and sayings by the Old Testament prophets. They basically ignore the Old Testament, actually. They hang on to that many multi-volumes of sayings and the life and times of the Old Testament prophets and they taught from there instead. And all this did not center on Christ. One of the modern, one, not all, but one of the modern equivalent of our day of myths and endless genealogies would be the charismatic claims to seeing visions of Christ. They will say that they have seen vision of Christ visiting them by the bedside to comfort them in their distress, in their sickness. They claim to have heard the words of Christ telling them that the church must buy the property to build the next mega building. And you must bring your love. That means the Lord have, have Instruct me to tell the church to bring your love, your love tie gifts and your offerings to the Lord. Now, I once attended a Pentecostal conference, a full conference held in the old National Stadium many, many years ago. Now, besides tongue speaking, imagine the whole stadium was full, full with people. And imagine at one moment they all burst into tongues. Quite scary for a uh, a young adult believer then, but it's my field trip study. Yeah, besides tongue speaking, there were words of prophecies, words of knowledge, holy laughter, so to 
speak. Their vision. And there's a mic in the middle of the... There are many, many mics placed over the stadium for people to come forward to, to share their vision, their word of prophecy and their word of knowledge. Then, then. And there's even a vision. Supposedly a vision of the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the stadium in the form of, of a dove. That's like what we see in Christ's baptism. Now the whole conference, it was so caught up with all these charismatic claims and messages that I think, and I give credit to this person, though he was, he had passed on and he was a charismatic leader, he, I think he could not contain himself but to warn the conference as he take on the, the le- lectern to give the message for the night. He had to warn the conference people not to be distracted by all these charismatic claims and visions but to stick with God's word. I think to him it's really superly outrageous. And I must thank God for him to sound that alarm, though I could not agree with him in many areas, in his, uh, especially as being a leader in the charismatic movement. So these are the myths and endless genealogies that we may have to combat today. Of course, thirdly, the false teachers often promotes legalism, not God's grace. Paul says in verse 14 that these false teachers promote the commandments of people, which in our modern day language or terminology will be legalism. Legalism involves emphasizing certain non-essential matters to the neglect of essential heart matters. Legalism focuses on outward behavior and conformity, uh, conformity to man-made rules rather than an inward conformity to the law, to the word of God. Legalism appeals to the proud heart and thinks that it can attain righteousness apart from the grace of Christ. They can attain a good standing with the Lord apart from His grace, in short. And they condemn those who do not do these things. And they do not judge the sin in their hearts or seek to please God from the heart. And that's what verse 15 refers to. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Now, Paul does not mean that if you think something is not sinful, then it is okay. Rather, he was referring to the Jewish ceremonial laws. And these false teachers claimed to be pure because they kept these rules. But in God's sight, they were unclean because their minds and and their conscience were defiled. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 to verse 14, only the blood of Christ could purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
Of course, the false teachers of today may not be into Jewish ceremonial laws. We love our pop chops. We love our bakwa. So that doesn't entice us. But they teach that you can commend yourselves to God by doing certain man-made commandments. For example, you must strive to witness to five persons a week and to at least and to at least lead one of them to Christ. And after that you must disciple him. That he can disciple others also. Sounds biblical, right? It is biblical. You must put on your Sunday best and you must be punctual for worship service. This these are good and right in themselves. But they could, divide, they could divert us from resting in the grace of Christ. Now, Jerry Bridges, in his book, Transforming Grace, an old book, he called it the performance treadmill. You know what does a treadmill does, right? You, you walk on it or you run on it, actually, then you, you count how many minutes you have. You are on the treadmill as you do your jogging on a treadmill and how much mileage you have covered within that, maybe half an hour of running. And you have to clock certain mileage before you can leave the gym, before you can leave the punishment of being on a treadmill. But the problem is, you can never measure up. You are never good enough. Who is good enough? Who is sufficient for all these things? No, no one. So these false teachers, by giving you the commandments of people, of men, they rob you of the joy of the Holy Spirit and also the grace of Christ. The scripture says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that the believer is complete in Christ. We are all complete in Christ. We, might, we may be one quarter few, half few, or three quarter few Christian, but we are all complete in Christ. Yes, there are stages in our growth. There's also, we may also decline in our Christian life, but if we have Christ, we are all complete in Christ. Because Christ has completed the work for us on the cross. And we can rest, and we are to rest in the complete work of Christ on the cross for His people. Where are you resting? In man-made commandments, man-made requirements, or in the complete work of Christ? That will plot your direction in your Christian life. Having considered that the eldership must guard the flock by refuting false teachers, next we look into the eldership and by extension the church must refute false teachers by exposing their sinful behaviour. Now, we know that bad doctrines always result in bad behaviour. On the surface, false teachers appear to 
be nice, as nice, winsome people. But as Christ pointed out in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, with reference to the Pharisees and the scribes, Christ said they looked like beautiful, whitewashed tombs on the outside. But inside, they are full of dead man's bones. And note how Paul described the behaviour of these false teachers in verse 10, in contrast to the faith and the life of the godly eldership from verses 6 to 9. They were insubordinate. And this is always at the root of false teaching. They refused to submit to God's word and to God's authority. Whether in the society, whether in the family or in church. Therefore, they invented doctrines. They invented doctrines to soup and feed their life or their wood. Further, we read in verse 10, they are empty talkers and deceivers. They're not all salesmen are like that, but like the crafty salesmen, they talk well to deceive you, to get you to buy their product. And read in verse 11, that they teach, they teach for shameful gain. Yes, the church must not muzzle the ox that tread off the wheat. And of course, tent making is never an option for the servant of the Lord as he serves in the church. But these false teachers, they teach for shameful gain, for filthy local. And false teachers often exploit their followers. We can read that in the news. It's not uncommon to find false teachers exploiting their flock. They must give and give and give to the Lord. While you are not supposed to touch them and question them in their spending, in their lifestyle. The false teachers often milk their followers for money and for recognition. Not, some, not just the monetary awards that they are looking for. They are also clamoring for their recognition, for their, uh, for their praise, for their intrinsic value, which they crave very much for. And furthermore, we read in verse 12 that like the infamous Cretans, they are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And in verses 15 to 16, they are described as defiled, unbelieving, detestable. And the word in Greek means to stink. They stink. False teachers stinks. But many times we love stink, stinky, not stinky tofu, but stinky false teachers and their teachings with open arms. I don't know why, but that's in us. They stink. And they're disobedient. And the last word that Paul has for them is they are worthless for any good deed. Worthless for any good deed. I need not to expound. I think you can read the word for yourself. 
And this is not the first time such strong words are reserved for the false teachers. Christ has denounced them before. And Apostle Peter and Jude have done the same in their letters to the churches. Therefore, the signboard, mark up the false teachers and beware of false teachers should stand high and clear in every church doorway. Also, false teachers would never say that they are atheists or they are the Antichrist. They will say they are the Christ, but not the Antichrist. They come to us as wolves in sheep's clothing. They come to us with a winsome smile and maybe a high intellectual powers and degrees. We also read in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And there's indeed one way to identify a false teachers, by their works and not by their words alone. Their bad behaviour, their worldly behaviour, ungodly behaviour will soon find them out. So, one of the unpleasant but necessary tasks of the eldership and the church is to guard the flock by refuting false teachers and also refuting false behaviours. The eldership must also guard the flock by correcting any believers who have followed false teaching. And there are many ways of doing so, but Paul mentioned two in our text today. First of all, we are to correct, we can correct by warning of cultural trends and tendencies that is unbiblical. Paul cites in verse 12, the Cretan poet Epimenides, who is, a more of also, who is also a philosopher. Zhao Jun may know him, I don't know. And he lives about 600 BC, even before Aristotle, correct? Uh? Aristotle is 360 BC, maybe. He lived a few hundred years before Aristotle. He's from Crete. Okay, by calling him a prophet, Paul does not mean that he was a prophet of the Lord or he could foretell the future. He's saying that this written philosopher poet is quite spot on on the cultural and social norms of his fellow countrymen. And now by quoting a secular poet philosopher against the written Christians, Paul is making an interesting point clear. The point is the cultural and behavioural norms of the day are deeply woven in their fabric of life, in the fabric of their church life. Something which they must look up for and something which they must discard by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now what would Paul warn us about if we live in our culture, in our secular Singapore? First of all, there is this culture of scared of losing out in the red race that permeates our society and sadly 
the church as well. See, an ex-classmate of mine in Bible College told me, asked, how's his, how his church, his church, uh, an evangelical church, how they would copy and how they would try to outdo a neighbouring church down the road in reaching out to the HDB estate. They put themselves on competition with a neighbouring church. He admitted that it was Gyasuism, but they could not help it because he said that his church must remain competitive. There is also the culture of consumerism. An extension of that, I will call it customerism. Consumerism means you consume as much as you can. And that leads to the fact that you are a customer. And as a customer, we are always right. And we are the greatest. Because we foot your salary, we foot your bill. Ultimately, the world at large, including our family, including our schools, our government, and also the church, are service providers. It's very sad to know that your family is now a service provider. They provide your food and lodging, also laundry service. For that matter. And the church is also a service provider. It can provide you with some teaching and a comfort, maybe for one and a half hours. So, my question to you today is when you come to church this morning or every Sunday morning, do you come with an attitude to serve or to be served? Do you come in here to demand your needs to be met, your rights to be recognized, your voice to be heard? Or do you come in to worship the Lord and to serve one another as the Lord enables you with His gifts and empowerment? That is, also, that is also the culture of pragmatism. That is so long or as long as it works. And the world tells us that social and moral cause can be sacrificed or be, can be set aside so long it can bring in money and jobs for the people. And the church at large have imbibed this philosophy in huge doses. And to a certain measure, even our church is infected by this. Pragmatism, a pragmatic spirit. The church, the, even the, the evangelical church, and even reformed ones are telling us, so long the method can bring in the crowds, can bring in the youth, can bring in the families. Forget about the old folks, but can the young and the young adults can be brought into the church 
So long the matter works, they can and we can set aside biblical standards for worship, for music, for preaching, and also for evangelism. It's happening. Worldwide, Singapore, everywhere, you find this happening. Biblical standards are set aside because for, an, for a method which seems to be working, we are to correct also by convincing strongly the importance and narrowness of the truth. Paul writes in verse 13, Therefore reprove them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. The them refers most likely to the believers according to the context. Now to reprove means to be convinced of the errors, to convince them of the errors. Severely means sharply, as one cuts off something with a single blow of an axe. Now, you do not correct spiritual errors by hints or suggestions. Yes, we have to do so in love. But we have to hit the nail on his head. Of course, I mentioned before, being sound means being spiritually healthy. It implies that if you do not correct spiritual errors, it will be like a serious disease which will lead to spiritual death or demise. And the word faith points to a well-defined body of truth confessed by the church then and now. You see, by the time of, the time of Titus, there's already a body of truth as well as in the time of Timothy. For I was a pastor in Ephesus. There's this well-defined body of truth passed down from the apostles and down through the ages. Therefore, the eldership and by extension, the church, we are to contend for that faith, that faith that we passed down through the ages, once and for all, delivered to the saints. Now, what shall we say to all these things? Since the effective way to tell the counterfeit from the real thing is to know the truth thoroughly. The eldership and the church must grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now the eldership and the church is on a lifelong learning journey on the will of God. We should never stop learning from the will of God. It is quite easy for a mature Christian, a Christian of many years standing, and even the eldership, to stop learning and growing in God's word. And I speak from experience, from my own personal experience. The love for the Word of God may have waned over the years. 
we may think that we have learned enough already. Or worst, we may be contented to remain as a babe in Christ when we ought to be a teacher. We refuse to grow up. No, we must banish such thoughts. The eldership and the church is in for the better of for the soul of man. And we need to be armed with the sword of the spirit to fight this battle. We need to know how to wield the sword of the spirit. In not only teaching the word of God, but also in refuting false teaching. Therefore, the eldership and the church must grow. And there's so much resources for us to tap on in our current day and age. Besides the weekly pulpit, the weekly Bible class, there are so many books written to help us to understand God's word better, to know certain topics better. And there are so much online resources, I mean good ones, credible ones, that you can tap on this Again, I always emphasize, always advertise for this ministry, the Ligonian ministry. 25 minutes of broadcast, 10 lessons at most for one subject. You can easily handle it in a month to learn at least one topic. Just half an hour. You are conscientious enough, answer some questions at the end of the uh, lesson. And the best part of it is it's free. For most of their resources, you need to pay a cent to have such a not only reservoir, tremendous reservoir of Bible knowledge that touches not only on doctrines but also on your Christian life. And I am continuing to benefit from it as I seek to grow in the Word of God daily. And since the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, or some versions put it as the ground of the truth, the eldership and the church must pray, must pray that we will continue to uphold and maintain the truth of God's word. We cannot take away the element of prayer. Prayer is relying on the Lord's power to supply what we lack, to do what He wants us to do. And we must pray. Pray to the Lord that the church, the eldership, will continue to uphold and to maintain the truth of God's word. And this is the urgent task of the hour. We are not in a playground, we are not in Wonderland. I think more than half a, de- half a century ago, A.W. Tozer says the world is a, not a playground, the world is a better ground. In its time, it's already a better ground. Now, we are in the front line of the better ground. In these days of moral declension and spiritual apostasy, How can we not pray to the Lord to help us 
to stand against the walls of the evil one. And there is no letting up in the battle for the souls of men. To use what the Armenian evangelists will always encourage the people to go for evangelism. Every minute, every second, a soul is slipping to hell. Of course, we know that God has, before the foundation of the world, ordained His people. But the truth is, yes, the battle for the soul of man is an ongoing battle, and there's no letting up in the battle for the souls of man. We have to share and preach the gospel to every creature. And the enemy of the soul and his cohorts are fierce. They're not winsome people, after all. They are crafty, they are fierce, and they want your soul. At least, they want to disrupt. They want to disrupt the well-being of your soul. They don't want your smile. They, they do not want only your money. They want your soul. But we are thankful to the Lord and we know from God's word the gates of hell cannot stand against them, the church, because Christ has already won the victory for us on the cross. Christ has won the victory for us on the cross and the gates of hell. I, in my trip to the Bible lands, I have the privilege to stand before that gate of hell. So, according to uh, the local guide, that is the gate of hell on mouth, uh, on that place where Christ is talking about to his disciples. He was standing beside the gate of hell in a big cave where the worship of many, many pagan gods was found in the cave. And people said that, that is the road to the gate of, that's the gate to hell in those days. This terrifying black hole right in front of you. Of course, we can't go in anymore because they block out the place. But this gate of hell is even more terrifying than the black hole, than the actual cave. The gate of hell could not stand against the marching orders of, the, of Christ. And Christ is bringing and leading the church, conquering and to conquer the souls of men till he returns again. He will come back again for our, his people and he returns to judge this wicked, sinful world for the last time. And when that day comes, we can, do, we can work no more. We can work no more for the souls of men. Now is the time to work. It is yet day, for when night cometh, no man, no one can work. Amen. Let us pray and seek the Lord's blessing.